0: Welcome to Meals for Maturity, Bible Talks to Help You Mature as a Follower of Jesus, by Pastor Dom Fiocco.
1: Well friends, what do you do if you find a, a book in your local library and you read the back cover and it says, a true story of love and lust, of murder and genocide, an empire built on deception and corruption, a comedy, a tragedy revenge at its very best, intrigue and suspense at every turn of the page. And then warning, this story contains sexually explicit scenes, high-level violence, racist views and may offend some readers. And what do you do if you choose to borrow this book only to find out that it's actually part of your Old Testament in your Bible? So you turn to the book of Esther and you read it and then you wonder how it got past the Bible censorship committee I mean, if it was made into a Hollywood or Bollywood movie, it would quickly earn an R rating, restricted audience. And if it was a a Netflix drama series, it would make for some serious binge watching with all its lively characters, its twists and turns in the storyline, the leading female role and episode after episode giving us beauty and rebellion and debauchery and revenge and assassination attempts. It's sort of perfect for Netflix, really. Yet the story of Esther makes it into most kids' Bibles, though I would argue that in most kids' Bibles, I can guarantee the message is moralised and it's all about Esther and therefore it's all about you. But if, you know, if all you know about Esther is from your Sunday school years or felt book stories, uh, felt board stories, if you're old enough to know what they are, or maybe from veggie Tales, then it's probably time you take an adult look at this Old Testament book. The book of Esther is one of the most fascinating true stories you'll ever come across. Well, welcome to the first edition of Meals for Maturity. This is a chance to hear more of God's Word, perhaps from some neglected parts of the Bible. Now, you would expect a book in the Bible to be on about God. Except the trouble is you won't find any mention of the name of God, Yahweh or Elohim, throughout the entire book of Esther. Go through 167 verses with a magnifying glass and there's no reference to God. Now, the only other book in the Bible that doesn't mention God is, of course, the Song of Songs. And both books have been questioned by many generations as to why it's even in the Bible, which is supposed to be a big book about God. And for the first seven centuries of Christianity, there's not one single Bible commentary on Esther that we can at least find. But as we study the book of Esther in this series, we need to ask these questions. I mean, if Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work if that's what he wrote then what's the value of this strange book in God's bible a book that doesn't even mention god is never mentioned in the new testament so how can it possibly equip us for every good work as followers of the lord jesus christ i mean it's a book that has no mention of prayer there's no reference to old testament sacrifices no quotes from other parts of the bible no mention of the law or the prophets there's no picture of praising God or of repentance by his people. In fact, you could argue that in the story of Esther, there's not really a good picture of what it means to be a faithful Israelite. So how can it possibly be a God-breathed out book and even be called Holy Scripture? Well, I have to show you across this series of Bible talks that the story of Esther is worthy of being in our Bibles, and it is worthy of your time to study it and to be amazed by the sovereign supernatural outworkings of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, God seems to be silent and never mentioned across the book of Esther, but that hardly means he is absent from the story. Now, I'm not the first preacher to call a series on Esther something like this. God behind the scene, the ordinary, extraordinary outworkings of God behind the scene. Now some have called uh, Esther an historical romance novel with its author ever present but never mentioned. But I don't think it's all that romantic, at least not compared to that other book in our Bible named after another woman, the book of Ruth. Now that's a romance story worth reading sometime. But like the book of Ruth, the story of Esther is set in history. And it's part of the history of ancient Israel before the arrival of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1. The book of Esther is a fantastic story that's told with great irony and satire and humour and and passion. It is a real page turner. And God knows that we like stories and storytelling. You just got to think of the toddler sort of stalling and not wanting to go to bed. Mum, Dad, please read me a story. Tell me a story. Or think of us adults and why we keep going back to libraries or bookshops or watching movies and even sometimes remakes of movies because they're great stories. And of course there's even great songs that are timeless and often they're just basically telling us a story. Think of many Bob Dylan songs. If you can hear what he's saying and he's mumbling, he's telling stories. Or think of uh, the great Don McLean and his song "The American Pie." I love Johnny Cash and his his uh, story or his song called "A Boy Named Sue." Have a listen to that sometimes. Or Simon and Garfunkel. They they sing great stories that are timeless. And if you like your '80s music like I do, well, let me tell you a little little ditty about Jack and Diane two American kids growing up in the heartland. See, God's wired us for stories. It's how we build and strengthen relationships. It's how ultimately we come to know God, how he reveals himself through narrative, through stories. And I've learned over the years that telling stories actually makes for good preaching and good listening and good applying. I mean, people sort of wake up when, I say, when I'm preaching away and say, let me tell you a story and sort of they, they come back to life again. Or think of the Lord Jesus with his many parables and stories and then think of God himself giving us this one big story of redemption and salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus. And in the book of Esther, God has left us with a story. It's a true story set in time, place, history, which can actually help us come to know God better and follow the Lord Jesus more fervently. I really like this quote. Uh, We can pick up the book of Esther with the assurance that despite first appearances, God has here given us bread, not a stone. Now before we open the curtain and watch scene number one in chapter one, it's important to get our bearings right and understand the setting, the context of this Old Testament book. We, We need to do that, of course, for every book in the Bible that we read and study and seek to apply as Christians. We need to ask these questions. When was it written? Uh, Where is this story set in the Old Testament timeline? What's going on at this point in time for the people of God? Now, we don't know the author's name, but we can be confident that he or she was Jewish and that they understood and they knew quite well the life and traditions of the Persian Empire around 483 to 473 B.C., Along with the story of Daniel, it's a a Bible story that takes place outside of the land of Israel. So there's no Jerusalem, there's no temple, there's no priests, there's no land that's theirs. And that's because Esther is a story about some of God's people still in exile in the land of Persia. Now remember God's people in the Old Testament, both Israel and Judah, have been exiled at this point to foreign lands. Uh, First it was the northern kingdom, Israel to Assyria around 722 BC and then the southern kingdom, the the people of Judah to the land of Babylon around 586 BC. So God's people are in exile and the scriptures tell us they're there because they've continually disobeyed and they've turned away from their covenant-keeping God. They're They're breaking his laws, they're turning to the idols of the other nations around them And way back in Deuteronomy 28, God has already told his chosen people that if you continue to disobey my laws, then you will go into exile. So God fulfills his promise and the people of God enter this dark period in their history. They're carted off to foreign lands, a land with no temple, sacrifices, no priests, no kings, no prophets, and they're under the control and rule of pagan kings and governments. But in God's kindness, however, this period of exile, will be relatively short and it will come to an end. Uh, Prophets like Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3, uh, tell us that. And now, when we get to the story of Esther, God raises up a pagan king, Cyrus the Great, who issues uh, a famous decree or edict that actually allows God's people to return to their homeland of Judah and Jerusalem and you can read all about that in the Old Testament book of Ezra chapter 1 uh, but from this point on God's people in the story of Esther uh, and while they're in exile they come to be called the Jews which is taken from their name of their homeland Judah we don't know king Cyrus's motives for allowing the Jews to return to Judah perhaps he figured there's maybe strength within his empire at the time if he allows the natives to return to their homeland and just to look after things there. What we do know, however, is that God stands behind Cyrus, the unseen player, if you like, and God is working out his purposes for the continuation of his promises given to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and the ultimate arrival of King David's greatest son, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And incredibly, Cyrus is the only pagan king across the Bible to be given the title of God's anointed. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. He's God's anointed. It's the same title that's used for Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed king. So in many ways, Cyrus is in the hands of the sovereign God and he's being used to work out God's holy purposes for redemption of his people. Now, the story of Esther takes place between the first return of the Jews coming back to Jerusalem. So it's about after 70 odd years in captivity in Babylon. And they're now led by the Jewish governor Zerubbabel. And so that's the first return. And then the second returning group is led by the priest Ezra. And you can read about these events in the books Nehemiah and Ezra. Now, for some reason, and we're not told here, but the main players in the story of Esther have chosen not to return to Jerusalem even though under King Cyrus's edict, they are allowed to go back to their homeland. At this point in world history, the Persian Empire has taken over from the Babylonians, and so they are now the superpower of this period. Now, King Xerxes is the son of Darius, and he's the Persian ruler. That's his Greek name. In Hebrew, he's called King Ahasuerus. Both names meant that he had to slowly spell out his name when it came to opening a bank account or dealing with Centrelink. And Xerxes is the father of Artaxerxes, who also would have had trouble spelling his name. Now, the setting for this incredible story of Esther is in in Susa, which puts us in modern-day Iran. And it certainly is an empire. It's the superpower of the day. It used to be said about Great Britain before two world wars, the sun never sets upon the British Empire. Well, the Persian Empire is a little bit like that with its vast claim of all these lands and territories. Okay, that's enough background and context. Let's get stuck into this fascinating piece of Old Testament narrative that is meant to make us laugh and cry and cheer and gasp and then ultimately rejoice at God behind the scene, working out his amazing plans for the salvation of his people in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's hear uh, chapter 1, read by Jen, and then I'll make some brief comments and then we'll seek to apply this part of God's word.
0: Chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces... In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendour and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones." Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona Bigtha and Abaktha, Zetha and Karkus, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Kashina, Shetha, Admasa, Tarshish, Merez, Masina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behaviour will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, All women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people.
1: Now the unknown author here is giving us enough hints in this opening chapter of Esther to to cause us to sit up and take notice of a a piece of history happening. We read, now in the days of. Now in the Hebrew language, this is the exact phrasing used by other Old Testament writers. It's like the introductory formula for the books of Joshua and Judges and, and Samuel. So here's another piece of old testament historical narrative taking place now in the days of and the story of Esther opens with a common picture of marital problems in a royal palace you just got to watch the crown and you'll know all about that but the main action to the drama of this story doesn't really happen until later on but this opening chapter gives us some key background so we're going to understand the bigger picture of what's to come So here in chapter 1 we we read of a palace of opulence and extravagance and and splendour. This is the only time across the Bible where we're given such detail of a building that's not the Jerusalem temple. So I think we're meant to be overwhelmed here by the description, by the gold and silver and violet and and even the the Persian gardens. And here is an empire where the king's whim is law. And such a law is irreversible, and that's a big theme later on in the storyline. We're also given a a picture of a world that is multilingual, many languages, yet a world that seems to be anti-Jewish. And this vast empire is also at the disposal of a mighty king, but this king can't quite rule his own house or affairs. So the story opens inside the royal palace in Susa, That's the winter capital of this Persian Empire around 483 BC. Now, there's three other capitals across the Persian Empire. Perhaps it's a bit like Australia, where most people think that Sydney and Melbourne are the capitals. I'm not sure why anyone doesn't pick Hobart, but anyway. The narrator here brings King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus onto the centre stage. And we're left in no doubt in these opening verses that this king is mighty and he's powerful and he's rich and he's somewhat of a party animal. Now when the king of Persia wants to celebrate and show off his wealth, he puts on a party with no expense spared. So he invites many other VIPs from far and wide and he makes sure this party lasts for months. And then just for good measure, he puts on another banquet, another feast right at the end of the week, just, I suppose, to finish up the leftover wine, the stale chips, the cold frankfurts, that sort of thing. We're meant to be impressed by the king's wealth and his power and his influence. But, you know, for all his displays of wealth and whining and fine dining and glitz and glamour, behind the scenes he has marriage problems. I mean, Queen Vashti, uh, queen rather, is ordered to parade before the drunken king and his guests. Now, we're not told why, probably to impress his guests, and you can think of another banquet in the New Testament where John the Baptist is martyred. One writer cleverly calls this episode Beauty and the Feast. Well, the Queen has also, we read, been busy spending taxpayers' money on her own little ladies' party. And then the order comes from the king queen vashti pose or be disposed and for some reason we're not told so it's pointless to speculate why she takes the latter option and she doesn't do what the king demands queen vashti's refusal to pose before her husband and his drinking buddies uh, automatically throws this powerful kingdom into turmoil The king's ego is assaulted and his authority is challenged and he loses the plot. The king eventually issues a royal decree in many languages, simply stating what he couldn't achieve in his own palace. His royal decree was basically that husbands should rule in their own homes. And so the once happy king seems to be happy again. The once stable empire is stable again. Queen Vashti exits stage left, never again to appear in the story, and the poor king's bed and feet are cold at night. Well, we're not actually told that, but you can use your imagination. Well, there's much more drama and intrigue and twists and turns still to come, but I want to leave us with this one thought right at the end of chapter one. That is, some of God's people at this point in Old Testament history, as I said, are living in a foreign land. They're living under ungodly rulers. They're living in a society that's dominated by values that are far removed from God's values. And God's people at this point in time are the minority report. The Jews living in Susa have no power or influence or voice or even recognition. And it doesn't take too much imagination to fast forward two and a half thousand years later, and discover God's people now actually mirror somewhat of the situation of the Persian Empire, just without the Persian rugs and perhaps the wild government parties, though Boris in the UK did show us how to do that during COVID. And now, of course, we're without a queen as well, who's finally gone to glory. But for all the drama to come in the story of Esther, God's people now find themselves as strangers and aliens living in a foreign land. And they're waiting for God's rule to be finally ushered in, where Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 tells us, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But that's still to come. And so now we watch and we wait, and we are to keep living for King Jesus who is actually nothing like the king of Persia. And for that, we can praise God for. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, please help us to live godly lives as strangers and aliens in a foreign land while we wait for the return of your son. Please help us to learn lots from the book of Esther about what does it mean to live for you and for your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.